Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon. And today for Julia Chatterley, great to have you with us this Tuesday. And it is a terrific Tuesday, in fact, for World Cup football fans. Later today, England battles Wales and the U.S. takes on Iran in a key winner-takes-all face-off. The very latest on today's crucial day of play just ahead. And from the white-knuckle World Cup to global markets trying to move up, U.S. stock futures pretty much flat at the moment after Monday's 1.5% pullback and European shares a bit firmer after a strong Asian handover. All of this on hopes that the unprecedented lockdown protests across China will force some sort of Communist Party reevaluation of its zero-COVID policies. And later on this hour, Leland Miller, the CEO of China Beige Book, gives us his take on the China protests and also the outlook for economic reopenings there. But first, let's go to China's capital, Beijing, eerily quiet on Tuesday night with a heavy security presence keeping protesters off the streets. That's a stark difference from scenes on Sunday when crowds of protesters gather to challenge the government's zero COVID policies. CNN's Ivan Watson joins us now from Hong Kong. So, Ivan, what happens now? Because I don't think anyone expects the protests to just go away and the issues at the center of these protests, of course, these zero COVID policies still remain intact. So what happens now? Yeah, that's what we're trying to watch and see. And it's it's all the more difficult because there is a very heavy blanket of censorship over China uh, so that it's it's hard to get information. And that's why the images that have emerged uh, of these protests that erupted over the weekend are, are so striking. Uh, there are more images of kind of protests and crackdown. This is from the eastern city of Hangzhou on Monday night where uh, police were seen detaining people and you had bystanders screaming and and very emotional and saying you can't do this. Uh, And we have also heard and seen uh, in Beijing and in Shanghai of a substantial police deployment since demonstrations were allowed to take place on Saturday and Sunday uh, and not seeing a repeat of those protests on Monday and now into Tuesday, also hearing about detentions in Shanghai, of barriers being put up along roads to prevent people from being able to gather, and ominously hearing anecdotal accounts of police stopping pedestrians, uh, searching their phones for images of the protests that took place in Shanghai on Saturday and Sunday. And the Chinese government has uh, an enormous system of surveillance and state security, many levers that it can use to intimidate and uh, stop uh, expressions of dissent, which it has freely used in the past. There are signs, however, of kind of tacit acknowledgement that, hey, maybe things need to be loosened up a little bit. There were senior health officials who gave a briefing uh, today. These do take place almost on a weekly basis. Uh, And take a listen to kind of the tone coming from a top health official when discussing the uh, COVID restrictions that have triggered so much discontent. 
The problems reflected by the masses are not mainly aimed at the prevention and control of the epidemic itself, but focused on the simplification, excessive implementation, one-size-fits-all approach of the prevention and control measures, and disregard of people's demands. These officials are talking about, you know, trying to lift lockdowns a little sooner. They're, they've announced an action plan to vaccinate uh, Chinese citizens over 80 uh, who have relatively low vaccination levels. Uh, the question is, will this be enough uh, as China continues to struggle with tens of thousands of new COVID cases a day and continues to be committed to trying to eradicate the virus completely uh, from its territory? Rahel? Ivan, that is the big question. Will it be enough? We will soon see. Ivan Watson, good to have you in Hong Kong there. And Asian financial markets bounce back Tuesday on hopes that the recent unrest in China will die down as restrictive anti-COVID measures are relaxed slightly. Officials have announced plans to boost vaccination rates among the elderly. Well, that appeared to be enough to soothe some investors' concerns. CNN's Mark Stewart joins me now. Mark, good to have you. So look what a difference 24 hours makes, because the last time you and I spoke, markets were solidly lower on the back of these protests. And now it looks like, at least in the U.S., things have flatlined and things look a bit more positive. Walk me through what's behind this. Uh, hi, hi, Rahel. Indeed, a dramatic bounce back. And in particular, let's look at Hong Kong, the benchmark Hang Seng Index. It at one point yesterday saw a drop of more than 4%. Look at where we are today. Big gains up more than 900 points uh, compared to yesterday. Also gains uh, on the notable Shanghai Composite Index. As you mentioned, there are these plans in place to vaccinate more individuals in China with a big focus on the elderly population. And that is something that investors have been wanting to hear. They have been craving to hear. They want some kind of roadmap for the future. If there is a point that has come up in my conversations, in my emails, in the analyst reports, it's the fact that traders are really trying to grapple between two different narratives right now in China. One, we have very strict lockdowns. Two, and in the past, over the last few weeks, there have been some signs that perhaps things were going to ease up a bit. They don't know which narrative is the one that will prevail. And that's why we have seen so much rockiness. But this plan of attack, this plan forward, obviously is striking a chord with investors. And it needs to, because the implications of this from an economic standpoint are very broad. First of all, Many of these lockdowns have led to unemployment in China. It's impacted iPhone production. It's even impacting the price tag of oil. So, Rahel, every word that comes from China, from government leaders, uh, any kind of plan of action is taken very seriously and impacting these financial decisions. Well, as you pointed out, Mark, global investors appear to like the news. I imagine Disney investors, however, not thrilled with what they're seeing. Uh, Disneyland Shanghai closing again because of COVID restrictions. But, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong. They just reopened a few days ago. Uh, yes, the park reopened uh, just a few days ago. Let me double check the date. Yes, November 25th. That's after a lockdown that began on October 31st. It's a big tourist uh, destination, especially for Shanghai, because it's such a business center. So you have uh, tourists. Obviously, right now it's more of a local, more of a local draw because of, of restrictions in place. But it, but it's it's a symbolic, significant presence. Uh, so no indication yet exactly how long this will last. Uh, 
It says it will notify guests when they have a date to resume operations. Two hotels, though, in the resort will remain open. But this is yet another indication that every aspect of life in China is impacted. And, of course, there are concerns, uh, as we have discussed over the last 24 hours, about access to food, water and essentials. Uh, so in some regards, the, the concern at Shanghai Disney pales in comparison. But it just shows the symbolism and the reach of the restrictions in place. Mm, absolutely, Mark. And I think the last closure at Disneyland Shanghai lasted about three weeks from late October to November uh, 25th, as you pointed out. So we'll have to wait and see what this closure looks like. Mark Stewart, good to have you. NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg is warning that Ukraine could face further attacks on infrastructure because Russia isn't making progress on the battlefield. Take a listen. President Putin is failing in his brutal war of aggression. He is responding with more brutality. We see wave after wave of deliberate missile attacks on cities and civilian infrastructure, striking homes, hospitals and power grids. This is terrible for Ukraine. And the statement coming just ahead of a NATO foreign minister's meeting in Bucharest, Romania. Joining me now is Fred Pleitkin in Moscow. Fred, what do we expect the Russian response to this to be? We expect it to be angry. I mean, it was quite interesting because Jens Stoltenberg there on the one hand saying that he believes that the Russians are failing on the battlefield and therefore conducting those strikes. He also accused them of trying to weaponize winter, obviously against the civilian population in uh, in Ukraine. And the Russians, for their part, over the past couple of weeks, they've obviously been witnessing this. They, for their part, have been accusing NATO of fueling the conflict. The Russians um, are saying that, look, NATO keeps pouring weapons into Ukraine. That's prolonging the conflict. Obviously, the Ukrainians and the U.S. are saying, well, the Ukrainians are simply defending themselves, and these weapons are very necessary. Vladimir Putin last Friday, he seemed to take up that topic to a certain extent. He said that he believed Russia was not even at war with Ukraine, but as he put it, at war with those who are bankrolling and supplying the Ukrainians, obviously speaking about NATO. And that's something, uh, Rahel, that we've been seeing on Russian state media from Russian officials really increasingly over the past couple of months, where they're trying to portray this as a wider conflict of Russia with the West, especially with an organization, of course, like NATO. And that also coinciding, by the way, with some of the losses that the Russians have had on the battlefields in the south in Kherson, but of course in the north uh, as well. And as far as those strikes on critical infrastructure are concerned, Russian state TV really does showcase those. And Russian state TV really does say those are going to continue. And the Russian government, the spokesman for the Kremlin, has also said those strikes are going to continue until all of Russia's demands are met. So the Russians are quite open about the fact that they intend to continue uh, to strike critical infrastructure in Ukraine uh, until they either make more progress on the battlefield or until essentially the Ukrainians surrender to them or at least, as they say, uh, get to some sort of peace agreement on Russia's terms. So um, in, in every way, it seems as though the Secretary General is correct to say that uh, there will be or there could be further strikes on critical infrastructure. It's certainly something that the Russians are saying they plan to do and also something that the Ukrainians say they are fully expecting will happen as well. Of course, we know that Ukraine's power system really being degraded uh, throughout the winter as those power outages lasting longer and longer as Russia continues those very strong strikes against that critical infrastructure, Rahel.
And it's just the, the beginning of winter. I mean, you're hearing some reports that uh, Ukrainians yeah. should be prepared for this type of, you know, these type of conditions through March, which um, is really something to wrap mm -hmm. your head around. Fred Plykin, good to have you. Thank you. And the families of Iran's World Cup team have been threatened with prison and even torture if players don't, quote, behave ahead of their match today with the U.S. That's according to a source involved with the security of the games. Let's get the latest on these allegations now with Nada Bashir. Nada, wonderful to have you. Look, I mean, we have seen the Iranian players uh, be able to express themselves before, right? You think about that game or that match with uh, Wales, I believe it was, when they didn't sing the national anthem. But uh, as we have seen with this threat, it clearly comes at a cost. It is clearly very dangerous to express themselves. Absolutely, Rahal. And we have seen a shift uh, over the last week or so in that opening match against England. The players of Iran's national football team chose not to sing the national anthem in an apparent show of solidarity with the protest movement in Iran. But that second match is where we saw uh, players singing the national anthem and, in fact, facing boos and jeers from members of the crowd and supporters in the stands, uh, of course, uh, in relation to their decision to sing the national anthem. But, of course, now we are learning uh, from a source working closely on the security of the games that the Iranian national football team is facing pressure from the regime and not just the players themselves but their loved ones and family members back home in Iran. Now, according uh, to this source, family members in Iran have been threatened by the regime with imprisonment, with violence, even with torture. Uh, if any of the players are seen to be participating in any form of protest against the regime and any sign of solidarity with the protest movement at home, and of course, importantly, not singing the national anthem ahead of today's match against the United States, of course, a, a crucial match for Iran nonetheless. But this has raised concern over the situation not only at home but for the players themselves. According to this source, uh, the players were held with a meeting uh, with members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps as well as their head coach who reportedly had a meeting with representatives essentially warning them uh, to behave, not to act inappropriately ahead of this match. And there have been reports of an increased presence of security officials monitoring the actions and activities of the players as they take part in the World Cup in Qatar. So clearly a lot of concern there around their safety. And this isn't the first time we've seen Iranian athletes and sports people coming under the pressure uh, of the regime. But now it is clear that the national football team is no exception to that pressure. Rahel? It's a great way to put it. Nada Bashir and that match kicks off at 2 p.m. Eastern. A lot of people will be watching. Thanks for joining us. And straight ahead, bracing for hurricane strength recessions or just a cold wind. The CEO of Bank of America looks at what's to come. And Elon Musk cooking up a new battle, this time taking aim at the Apple boss. And as we'll explain, it's all about advertising. Stay with us. It is a busy day in Doha as the World Cup begins the high-stakes final matches of the group stages. There is that Iran-U.S. match that we mentioned, but there are many others as well. Amanda Davis joins us with all of the details from Doha. So, Amanda, you also have the England and Wales matchup, and the odds, I understand, are stacked against Wales. But if there is one thing we have seen in this World Cup, it is upsets. What are you expecting? Yeah, well, I'm, as an England fan, I have to tell you very much hoping not for an upset in that one. But I mean, you have to say the majority of the focus today on and off the pitch has been about that big clash between uh, Iran and the USA. The Iranian coach, Carlos Quirosh 
calling, pleading, really, for the 90 minutes that the match is taking place, the focus beyond the football rather than the politics that has very much taken front and centre stage since that draw was made here in April. Uh, Iran and Quirosh know that this side are on the brink of history. They have never before qualified out of the group to the knockout stages of a World Cup and they know that a draw will be good enough for them. They very much dominated in their last game against Wales but they're up against a US side who are young, who are enthusiastic and they've got the mindset, there's been a, a real mindset shift with them recently, that they can beat anybody on their day. The question mark about this US side is how they will deal with this moment with the eyes of the world watching, because 25 out of 26 of them, this is their first World Cup experience. They've ever, only ever played two World Cup matches in their career, and there's also a little bit of uncertainty as to where they're going to get their goals from, because we haven't seen too many of those from their uh, so far this tournament but they know a win will make them go through England for their part trying to avoid a 4-0 defeat by their close rivals Wales uh, they would hope given the history between the two sides they will be able to do that but as you very well uh, mentioned Rahel um, who knows what is going to happen at this tournament. Before those games, though, we have Ecuador taking on Senegal. This is an Ecuador side. Their coach calling for this to be the best Ecuadorian World Cup performance in history. But a lot of that will depend on the fitness of their star man, Eno Valencia. He's been the player who has scored all their goals in the tournament so far, but he limped off in their last uh, fixture. So a few question marks uh, against him. The other match uh, in that group, the one that the home fans, well, we're not sure whether they're hoping for it, looking forward to it or not. Because, of course, Qatar, the first team out of this tournament, hoping to avoid the embarrassment of being the first ever World Cup hosts, not to even win a point in the group stage. They take on a Dutch side who I think it's fair to say are handing out some fighting talk. They're three-time runners-up at this tournament. And uh, their coach, Louis van Gaal, says, we're not just talking about qualifying out of the group stage. For us, we're talking about winning it. So much to watch, Amanda, and so much on the line, as you pointed out there. Amanda Davis joining us there from Doha. And here in the U.S., Congress is preparing to act to prevent a national rail shutdown. President Biden warns that a strike could devastate the economy. It comes as the Bank of America's CEO says that the U.S. is heading for a mild recession. Brian Moynihan spoke to Poppy Harlow on CNN's This Morning a short time ago. Take a listen. Things like the rail strike or the war in Ukraine and, you know, what happens in China with shutdowns, those are all sort of things that can really derail the economy, and everybody knows that. And we've been dealing with them for quite a period of time. But if you look at the core economy, our team has a, a, a mild recession predicted in the middle of 2023, and then coming back out of it later in 2023. Now, that was predicted to happen this year, earlier this year. The, there was going to be a real slowdown. The Fed yeah. was going to raise rates. And it's all pushed out largely because of one thing, which is the U.S. consumer who is spending money, and we just got our spending from Thanksgiving to last Saturday, and it was up 3% over last year, which was up 23% over the year before, 20% over where it was in 19. You see 
booking travel and things like that. You see the consumers employed. Um, you see them spending money. You see them having money in their accounts. Now, that means inflation has to be tackled by the Fed. But the consumer actually is both a buffer against that and also makes it difficult. What I think is so interesting about you, Brian, is you've been like the, you know, the optimist in all of this. So you just said, yes, a mild recession next year, but we'll get through it by the following year. Jamie Dimon warned this summer, head of J.P. Morgan, that an economic hurricane, his words, are coming. We just don't know how strong a hurricane. Do you see an economic hurricane? Well, the hurricane season is now closed. So having a house in the Carolinas, I'm used to dealing with that. But, you know, in the end of the day, the belief was if any of those horribles came together, you could have really a different outcome than the Fed tightening. And the Fed is tightening in an unprecedented uh, way because we have an unprecedented un- inflation, 40, 50 year long inflation. So what does that affect first? Housing. Obviously, that's changed dramatically. Um, but rent increases are only coming through now. So in the end of the day, the consumer is held in well. And the end of the day, the consumer ha- stays reasonably strong because they're employed. So I'm hearing no economic hurricane from Brian Moynihan. Am I no, right? A mild recession. And recession fear is also in the minds of industry leaders in the global tourism sector. They are meeting in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, for the summit of the WTTC. Organizers say that this year's event will break records with more international business leaders and foreign delegations present than ever before. And also present is Richard Quest, and he joins me now. So, Richard, look, I mean, Saudi Arabia spending so much on tourism right now, I think $1 trillion to try to build up their tourism. What on God's earth are they spending $1 trillion on? Walk me through. So there are two issues that are really here. The first is the Saudi, as you rightly point out, the sheer amount of money that Saudi, that hundreds of billions that they're spending on tourism over the next 20 or or, or so years. But then you actually have the industry itself in the rest of the world, if you will, the WTTC. And this is the private grouping of uh, tourism companies. They all come here, particularly the hotels, the destinations and the CEOs. And what they're telling me this year is that things are good. Sometimes they're not back to where they were pre-pandemic, but that people are traveling. We know that anecdotally. People are traveling. They are prepared to spend the money. Rates are high. And that will continue, perhaps buffered by, if you will, the forthcoming recession that Brian Moynihan was talking about, that low recession. Interestingly, What's missing in all of this? The Chinese, of course. Can you have a recovery without them? I spoke to the CEO of Accor Hotels, one of the largest in the world. Sebastian Bazin is quite clear. Things are better, but... Yes, it is. We're missing 130 million Chinese travelers. It's quite a bit. Uh, But you know what? We, We kind of actually adjusted to it. Uh, they spend money in China, so actually the hotel of Accor in China do pretty well. Uh, but we're missing a lot of them in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia. Uh, we need them back. Uh, sooner the better. Uh, unlikely before summer next year. You see, that, that's the key part. You're not banking on it for, ne- for any time soon? No, certainly not for Chinese New Year. Probably six months, but it could be much longer. Uh, but again, we've been meeting them for three years, so, and I've been in China for 45 years, so waiting another year, that is fine. Now, now the reality is this surreal experience of being in Saudi, where they just keep spending, and they're spending these large sums of money, Rahel, because it's part of Vision 2030. And that, of course, is a post-oil economy. What's the country going to do? 
So you have the giga projects, which we see all around us. You have vast investment and you have an industry. And let's be blunt here, Rahel. The industry is salivating over the amount of business and investment coming from Saudi. So whilst they sort out everywhere else, they know there are very large contracts to be earned right here. Very large indeed. Richard, before I let you go, I mean, do you think that it is wishful thinking for these executives to continue to expect travel to be strong? I mean, Moynihan may have said that the recession will be mild in the yeah. U.S., but as you well know, you and I talk about it a lot on Quest Means Business, it will likely not be mild in many parts of the world. The U.K. already in a recession. I mean, is it wishful thinking to think that everything will be just fine and dandy yeah. for international travel? No, I don't think it's wishful thinking. I think there's a lot of validity in that because people want to travel. They were locked up for X number of years. We're starting to see that abate in terms of people getting back on the road. They've got their bucket lists of where they want to go. Where I think you'll see the difference is staycations. They'll trade down. They'll fly a low-cost carrier, not a full-service carrier. They'll stay in an apartment or an Airbnb, not a hotel. They'll stay in a three- or four-star, not a five-star. But I have seen no real evidence that suggests people won't travel. You might have a dent, you might have a blip, you might have all things, but there is nothing that suggests the likes of uh, the uh, people who, have, who will not actually still say travel's a priority. And even, even business travel is coming back, Rahel. And what's more, if you see your competitor on the road, you go on the road as well. Well, that's a very interesting point, Richard. We will have to see. People will still take their trips, but they will travel differently. Richard Quest, wonderful to have you. And so to come on first move, protests and unrest in China causing concern on a global scale. The CEO of China Beige Book joins me to discuss after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The opening bell has sounded on Wall Street. The Bulls hoping for a Tuesday turnaround after a rough start to the week, but still some nervousness out there as we head into a really busy period for economic data and Fed speak. As we can see, the markets are a bit mixed. The Dow and the S&P are both fractionally lower. The Nasdaq is up about one-tenth of a percent. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is set to deliver remarks tomorrow at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Investors hope that he will hint at a less aggressive central bank. The U.S. also releases its latest jobs report on Friday. U.S. markets tumbled one and a half percent on Monday. That was the biggest one day drop for the major averages in weeks. But lots of talk now about the resiliency of the Dow. Despite all of the recent volatility, and there has been a lot, the blue chip average is actually only down less than 7 percent so far this year and is less than 10 percent away from record highs. That's a stunning turnaround. The Dow getting a boost from recent strength in companies like Boeing, Caterpillar and Honeywell. Health officials in China, meantime, promising to modify how some COVID-19 restrictions are applied. That's after those unprecedented protests against the zero COVID policy shook the country and rattled investors. There was an overwhelming police presence in major cities Monday and Tuesday as authorities scrambled to try to stamp out the protests. Now, as COVID case numbers spike, the government says it's launching a plan to boost vaccinations among elderly people. Protests, of course, started after some reports blamed COVID restrictions for hampering firefighters as they tried to respond to a deadly fire in the Xinjiang province last week. CNN's Ivan Watson spoke exclusively to the families of some of the victims. 
anger on the streets of Chinese cities. The biggest nationwide display of discontent this tightly controlled country has seen in a generation. Protesters pushing back against police and the government's zero COVID policy. The unrest triggered by a deadly fire in Urumqi in China's western Xinjiang region last Thursday. Videos emerge of fire hoses barely reaching the blaze, which killed at least 10 people. Among them, Kamarnisa Han Abdurrahman and four of her children. What happened to your mother and your brothers and sisters? The fire started on the 15th floor. The smoke poisoned my family. The government could not stop the fire in time. Two surviving adult children of Kamarnisa Han speak to me from Turkey. Unable to see their family since 2017 due to the harsh crackdown, the government accused of putting up to two million of their fellow ethnic Uyghurs and members of other minorities in internment camps. They say their loved ones were trapped in the building by COVID measures. They could not escape because the fire escape was blocked, and the fire escape to the roof of the building was also locked. Accusation CNN cannot independently confirm, but Chinese authorities have been seen literally locking residents into buildings. Outrage over the Urumqi fire compounded by previous deadly incidents in recent months directly linked to COVID prevention. Though CNN verified 16 protests in 11 Chinese cities this weekend, a Chinese government official told a journalist they just didn't happen. What you mentioned does not reflect what actually happened. China has been following the dynamic zero-COVID policy and has been making adjustments based on realities on the ground. On Monday, the white papers that have become a symbol of the protests in mainland China spread here to Hong Kong, where these small groups of demonstrators are holding a vigil for what they say are the victims of China's zero-COVID policy. I am a victim. I cannot go home for many years, like two to three years, right? My parents were locked down for three months, and even relatives of my good friends, they suicide because of the lockdowns. With China reporting record-breaking new daily cases of COVID, there appears to be no end to the lockdowns in sight. Meanwhile, siblings Muhammad and Sharapat cannot even pray for closure after suffering the unimaginable loss of five immediate members of their family. Will you go home for the funeral of your family? We want to attend the funeral of our family members, but if we went back now, China will put us in jail or even torture us. Ivan Watson, CNN. Hong Kong. And joining me now is Leland Miller. He is the CEO of China Beige Book. Leland, wonderful to have you today. I want to start with a research note that you wrote yesterday saying any semblance of positive news should be on the way, hence the rally in sensitive Chinese stocks. Last I checked, uh, markets had bounced in, in China. Is this a semblance of positive news? Is this just the appearance of positive news, this uh, elderly vax campaign, or is this actually positive news? 
Well, look, you can have positive news without it meaning the end of COVID zero. I think the flawed part of many people's assumptions right now is they say, oh, we are peeling back a quarantine period by a couple of hours. You know, we're moving, uh, you know, this measure uh, by a day. We're moving this other measure by some small amount. This must mean COVID zero is approaching an end. And it's very difficult to imagine uh, a China that opens up, that ends COVID zero, which is essentially the lockdowns of, of communities and, and of businesses during the winter spread season. So, you know, is it positive news? Sure. Is it going to lead to some mini rallies in certain stocks? Absolutely. Is this an endure, you know, the beginning of the end for COVID zero? I, I don't think it is. So would you say we are no closer to a reopening in China than we were even before these protests? What I think the protests did is I think they moved the timeline for acceptable action in terms of ending COVID zero up a few months. Uh, I don't mm. think that the party was in any particular hurry to end COVID zero. They're worried about the virus. They're worried about deaths. They're worried about the legacy of the party from mishandling COVID zero. So maybe you had a timeline of, of you know March to June next year where they would do some things. That timeline is likely moved up. Maybe it's to start things in, in, in February, March. The point is they, they can't wait probably as long as they, they thought they could. But this does not mean that they're going to rip back COVID zero in December. They're not going to rip back COVID COVID zero in January. They've got to keep things under relative control in order to make sure the virus don't lead to spiraling death counts. So what measures do you think, if not a, a total lifting of, of zero COVID, what measures do you think we might start to see scale back? You talked about how uh, days have been shaved off of the quarantine. I mean, we know that where people quarantine has changed. What else do you think we might where we might start to see concessions in the policy? Well, if I were she, the first thing I deal with is family separation. I would try to put an end to that. Uh, you know, the the number one thing markets are looking for is a, is is a, is a date certain in the future where they can see a horizon where COVID zero no longer exists. That's the signal that that businesses are waiting for. If you look in China based book data, they've been telling us for months and months and months that they won't borrow. They won't invest and they won't hire until COVID zero is over. Not an announcement COVID zero is over, but until COVID zero is over. So to the extent you could ever provide even a rough date for when there's an exit ramp, that would be very helpful. But for obvious reasons, including being backed in a corner uh, in the spring and in, in the late winter, uh, the, the authorities have so far been very hesitant to, to move in that direction. Mm. What do you think? I know you said in an interview yesterday that these protests are not enough to see she actually step down. What would it take to see uh, that type of massive movement? You know, nothing comes to mind. I, you know, I think that when people see protests, even ones as significant as the recent ones, which which were uh, protests over the same issue, you know, bubbling up in multiple cities, that is very unusual in China, but that doesn't mean that the regime is at risk. Uh, so I, I think that we're very far away from any type of, uh, of scenario where the party's in danger or Xi Jinping's in danger. What I do think this does is put enormous political pressure on the party, on Xi Jinping specifically, to, to, to figure out a COVID zero plan. They haven't mm. had a plan for years. I see. So to figure out a, a sustainable COVID plan. Do you also think we start to see Beijing separate themselves from some of the local municipalities that have actually uh, been tasked with performing and executing zero COVID? That would be a very problematic task because, you know, obviously, this, the, you know, the, the, the old platitude was that the center announces what the policies are and then the, the lo localities do what they want. And, and to some degree, that's been, been uh, the case. But the problem has been that Xi Jinping has been so 
uh, personally associated with the COVID zero policy that nobody in the provinces and the towns, nobody wants to have any any daylight between them and, and a very aggressive form of COVID zero policy. So I think what they're doing in terms of just slowly changing the narrative in the official central publications that COVID zero can be lived with, that it's not as scary as you think, I think that's moving in the direction where she is saying, look, it's okay to have a little bit of daylight uh, between you know this this draconian uh, COVID zero and what we want to implement on the ground. But it's going to take time. Hmm. One thing I thought was really interesting got my attention. You say a sharp change in course under pressure would be a signal of weakness to everyone, protesters, the masses, party elites and the world. I think that's exactly right. You know, every every other every couple of nights, I get some sort of text saying that something on Chinese social media suggests that COVID zero is going to end, you know, 10 minutes from now. It's very unlikely that she does this kind of course correction. Forget politics, uh, domestic politics, for forget uh, forget health. If you're just talking about Xi Jinping, for him to have doubled down at the Congress and then to immediately reverse himself after a few protests, that would be a signal of, of, of weakness. So you have to factor that in your analysis, too. Uh, just just a lot more things going on than, than, than she slowly bending to uh, a desire to open up. It's been very interesting to watch. Global investors, however, seem to seem to like it. They'll take the good news where they can get it. Leland Miller, good to have you. It's the CEO of China Beige Book. And stay with First Move. We will have more right after this. Welcome back. It's been more than two weeks since Russian troops withdrew from Kherson in southern Ukraine. But the city is still coming under daily attacks from Russian forces across the river, making survival even harder for the residents who remain. Matthew Chance has more. The devastation Russia's retreating forces left behind. A village in southern Ukraine torn to shreds and until now abandoned to this war. Instrument. Valery told me he's lived here 51 years and, after evacuating for eight months, is home to stay, even amid this wreckage. It's like a stone weighing on my soul, he says. We built everything here with our own hands. It's hard to look at what those Russian scum did to us, he adds. A short distance away in newly liberated Kherson, a pool of blood where Russia is attacking the city it just left behind. Four were killed when this grocery store was hit. Now one desperate resident picks through the debris, looting scraps of food and toilet paper. Is everything so bad, we ask? It's not good, he responds. All right, well, getting basic supplies, though, in Kherson has become a massive risk. We've come to the seaport well, it's the river port, really, right on the Dnieper River, with this woman here, Tatiana, from her son, to collect water so she can do her washing up and wash her clothes and go to the toilet and things like that. The water supplies have been completely cut off by the Russians. This is the only way, and you can hear the artillery shells going off still in the background, this is the only way she can get water for her house. And it's dangerous because this is basically the front line. The Russian forces have retreated to the to the other bank, right? Ruski Staldati Tam. Tam Yeah, so the Russian forces are just across the river. But the risk is one that has to be taken. 
What can we do, Tatiana asks. We can't live without water. There's little electricity either, and people are cramming into makeshift charging stations like this one just to stay connected. We found defiance here too, in the face of hardship. There's no water or power, Hannah tells me, but also no Russians, so we'll get through this. What do you think? I think our enemies will all die soon says Nastia, who's only just turned nine. We'll show them what you get for occupying Ukraine, she says. For many, the hardships are already too much. Roads out of Kherson crammed with residents trying to leave. But for those who stay, it is a desperate struggle to survive. Matthew Chance, CNN Kherson. And stay with First Move, more to come. Welcome back. Crypto's winter of discontent continues. Bitfront becoming the latest exchange to close down after failing to overcome turmoil in the industry. But despite a host of negative headlines, crypto apparently isn't going anywhere just yet. That's as our Anna Stewart reports when she visited a crypto mine in Sweden. Well, this is what a cryptocurrency mine looks like. Just rows and rows of computers. In fact, there are 116,000 here. As you can hear, it sounds pretty noisy. And I can tell you that it feels really hot up close to these machines. There's about a 30 degree centigrade difference, though, between here and here, under one of the big vents where you're getting the cold air from outside. But you can feel the energy that is coming out of these. Enough to power a small city. One of the reasons crypto mining can be just so controversial. But that is why high blockchain technology is set up shop here in the north of Sweden. Come take a look why. Outside, some 500 metres along the river Lula, is a hydrogen power plant, a source of abundant, cheap and renewable energy. This is the energy that is powering the Bowdoin community and and our data centre that is located just nearby. So this is also one of the main reasons that Hive has decided to to bet on the Bowdoin community. Given Europe is in an energy crisis, there will be people that think this is renewable energy. Should it be used for crypto mining? Shouldn't it be used to power people's homes and industry, yeah. keep lights on in hospitals? What do you say to that? Yeah, yeah. There are not enough uh, inhabitants or companies to use all the energy that is available. So the community of Bowdoin was inviting uh, data centers to come to use this uh, renewable stranded energy, really. One crypto mining company, not just turning a profit in the midst of a crypto winter, but also trying to forge a greener future. There are nearer term plans to turn the excess heat from the crypto mining into something more fruitful. In the spring, we're going to support a um, a Swedish company called Agtira. So they're building a a huge, big uh, greenhouse just at the back of our data center. And so we will have... Uh, tomatoes and cucumbers grown all year round in the very north of Sweden. Um, wow, that's incredible. It's really incredible. If Bit- you look at Bitcoin grown food. <laughs> it's like crypto cucumbers. <laughs> crypto cucumber. <laughs> yeah. Capture it and use it. 
Absolutely. No wasted energy. No wasted energy. This is... Anna Stewart, CNN, Boden, Northern Sweden. And Elon Musk is picking a high-profile fight with one of the most popular tech firms on the planet, Apple. The Tesla CEO and head of Twitter tweeting yesterday, quote, Apple has mostly stopped advertising on Twitter. Do they hate free speech in America? Musk going on to say, quote, Apple has also threatened to withhold Twitter from its app store, but won't tell us why. And the tweet storm does not end there. Let's bring in Donnie O'Sullivan. He is at the Knight Foundation Conference in Florida, where a former Twitter employee is expected to speak later today. Donnie, good to have you. Has Apple weighed in on this at all? They're not usually one to weigh in on Twitter about their business dealings, but has Apple said anything? Hey, Rahel, yeah, no, um, Apple haven't said anything formally yet to all of this, but, I mean, it's easy to see uh, what is happening here. Apple has a kind of quality control uh, in place for apps that go into its app store to basically protect its customers. Um, They make sure the apps don't have viruses in them or spyware, but also we saw over COVID, they brought in rules about not having apps that spread a lot of COVID misinformation. Also last year, Parler, which is a right-wing social media app here in the U.S., was briefly uh, removed uh, from the App Store for a few months until um, the company got its uh, hate speech policies in place. Obviously, we know uh, Musk is tearing up the rulebook at Twitter, and I think that is where maybe some of the concerns at the App Store and Apple are coming from. Speaking of tearing up the rulebook, there was a COVID misinformation policy at uh, Twitter the past few years. Um, that overnight, we learned, has been uh, removed. Uh, they are no longer, um, th- there's no longer a ban on misinformation about COVID uh, or the vaccine. Um, as you mentioned, Rahel, uh, we'll be hearing a little later this evening uh, from Yoel Ross, who will be speaking uh, on the stage behind me. He was responsible for implementing a lot of these rules at the platform. He just uh, quit the company about two weeks ago, um, seemingly no longer able to work under Elon Musk. I'm sure that will be a very interesting speech to listen to. Tony, I want to circle back to that COVID misinformation uh, report that you just mentioned. As I understand it, it wasn't advertised. It wasn't even uh, broadcasted or displayed that they were changing the policy. As I understand it, folks just noticed it on the Twitter page. I mean, walk me through how this was even uh, explained or how we even came to learn about this. Yeah, it was um, some eagle-eyed Twitter um, uh, tweeter. People on Twitter last night pointed out um, there was a page uh, on Twitter's website that outlines this policy. Uh, and I think we have a, a picture we can show you there. There was basically a little addendum added uh, to it saying um, we're no longer implementing uh, this policy. Uh, under that policy, by the way, 11,000 accounts were suspended or banned from the platform. It's very, very possible that a lot of those accounts will be coming back. We've heard Musk uh, pledge that as soon as this week, a lot of those banned accounts will be back on Twitter. Much more to watch. Donny O'Sullivan, good to have you. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Thanks for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is coming up next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.